I am absolutely amazed at the amount of junk mail that I get. It often includes invitations to all kinds of things. Some are from being a pastor. Some I've realized that the older you get in life, people think you might have a few bucks tucked away, so they want to try and part you with your money. You know, the old expression, a fool and his money is soon parted. But I'm invited to all kinds of things. And to be honest, most of the time I glance at the invitation and right into the trash bin. But every once in a while, one catches my eye. And I think, you know, this one might not be bad. So I have a place where I put it. And so I can think about it if you want to be spiritual. I pray about it for a little while. And then I come back to it and I think, well, maybe should I go there? 99 out of 100 times, the meeting has already taken place. (laughs) It's expired, and it's too late for me to go. Now, that's a silly story about mail, but sadly, it's also true, I think, in the lives of so many people when they get the title of the message today, An Invitation from the King. Here in Matthew chapter 21, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. We have seen the uh, triumphal entry. We've seen Jesus walk into the temple and overturn the the, the tables, a, a sign of judgment upon what was going on in the temple. And now most scholars think it's Tuesday of, of the week of the cross, and Jesus is teaching in the temple, presumably in the uh, area of the Gentiles where anybody was allowed to be in. So there's lots of people there that are gathered, the hall of the Gentiles. And the religious leaders have come forward. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks to, to question Jesus' authority. Jesus basically had the attitude of, listen, you're not here to question my authority. I'm here to question your authority. And so Jesus begins telling three stories or parables about what's actually going on in the church or in the temple. Now, Jesus' parables, these stories, tell us what the kingdom of God is like or what the kingdom of heaven is like. Same thing, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And a lot of these stories, a lot of these parables uh, taught in sort of common language are full of surprises. Some of them are actually downright shocking And they often come at the very end. It's almost like Jesus kind of lulls you in with a nice story. You're like, oh, a nice story. And then he plugs you into the light socket. And then you're like, what what was that? And so here we, we have these three parables. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first one, the parable of the two sons, where Jesus pointed out that the religious leaders were a bunch of phonies. Last week, we looked at the parable of the tenants or the parable of the vineyard and and the, how the religious leaders had complete disrespect for God, his prophets, and God's own son. And today we come to the third of these parables that he's telling in this setting, and it, it concerns who will be in the kingdom of heaven. Who are going to be the people who actually make it to heaven, and who are the people who are not going to make it? Now, many Bible scholars think that this is the most difficult of all of Jesus' parables. Not because it's unclear, but because it's crystal clear. It's difficult because of how direct Jesus is. And what he will do is he will compare those who refuse the grace of God with those who receive the grace of God. And to be honest, in our culture, this is teaching that, that most people do not want to hear. They don't want to hear a story about people who would be religious or good in their own eyes or in the eyes of maybe the world, but they reject God. And when they reject God, how God in turn rejects them. So if you're taking notes, we want to break this passage up into three different sections. And the first is the rejected invitation. The rejected invitation. Matthew 22, verse 1 sets the stage. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said. So Jesus is speaking to them in figurative language that they would uh, presumably all would understand. And the parables are symbolic. We are to look for 
the main point or the main points, but not press all of the details too much, but look very carefully for the truth that the symbolism brings forth. Jesus says, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like, and so Jesus came from heaven. He knows what heaven's like. He knows what's going on in the world. He's going to tell us about what the heaven is, what heaven is like, or possibly what it is become like here on earth as far as the religious leaders and their followers are concerned. And so he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Now, they were, most of them, uh, you know, we, the Bible, the uh, religious leaders studied the Bible all day. Remember we talked about last week some of the TV shows maybe we were brought up on or stories or books they were brought up. The common people were brought up on hearing, hearing about the, the Bible. And so when they would hear a king, they would know that they were ta- Jesus was talking about God. So the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Another version says they did not want to come. Another one says that they refused to come. So this is a royal wedding that we had one a year or two ago over in England. It was no big secret. Everybody knew everything all about it. It's still in all the papers, you know. How are they getting used to life at this the palace and all their people and stuff like that? A lot of pomp and circumstance. So there's no secret to this wedding. The king is throwing a wedding for his son and in the ancient world, you didn't get one of those save-the-date things. You know those save-the-date things that you, you put on your freezer and then it's expired and you throw it out? So, so they didn't get a save-the-date. You just would know it was coming. And then eventually, you were told when the date was and you were then supposed to come. And so, but the verb tense here is, the more they heard about it, they persistently refused to come. Now, early in the Gospels, Jesus makes this comment. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And we may have been making the comment all along that the kingdom of God was at hand for the simple reason that the king himself has arrived on the scene in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And it seems to me here, the king represents God the Father. I wouldn't doubt that the son is Jesus, but as we're going to see, that's really not the point of the parable like it was last week so much about the son. The point of the parable this week is the invitation issued by the king and the response of people who receive the invitation. So this wedding is a wedding of a prince, the son of a king. Imagine all of the preparations that went into it. Imagine all of the cost at the taxpayer's expense, right? Well, they want to they have this big to-do so every, you know, everybody knows what's going on. And imagine the honor of being invited. You know, would, would you think twice about not going to something like this? So who would be on the guest list? Who would be on the guest list? Well, let's just think of what it would be like if this was going on in the United States of America. It would be very easy for us to know who's on the guest list. It would be the Hollywood A-list, wouldn't it? It would be all of those people, the most sought-after people in the nation. The, let's call them the in-crowd. And those would be the people who would be invited. And in Israel, the A-list or the in-crowd would be the religious leaders and their followers. And they would expect to be the ones invited by the king. They were like, of course we're going to be invited. We're the the A-listers. And the religious leaders are standing there. They're listening to Jesus. There's other people surrounding them. We said last week you could probably fry an egg on their forehead. They're getting so upset with the things that Jesus is saying because they know he's looking right at them. Remember, he looked at them last week and he said, I know your plan. You're planning to kill me. I know what you're going to do. And he keeps talking and so, and so they're listening to Jesus, and they would know, again, from the word of God, from the Old Testament, that the king was God, and the banquet was the end of the age. Uh, we, might, we might call it um, eternal life with God, or we often refer to it as heaven, as this great banquet God would have at the end of the age with his people. But here there's a critical mistake that people make. They made it here, And they're still making it today in our culture in which we live in. And that mistake is this. When the king invites you to the wedding, 
It is not an optional invitation. It is a command. You, you didn't spurn the king. You didn't go, you say, oh, no, no, I have no, no time to go uh, for, for something like that. It, it, was a, it was a command, and you went for sure. To refuse the invitation would be insulting and disrespectful to the king and the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's something I want to say right now that I'm going to say throughout this message a few different times in a few different ways, but I really want everybody to understand this right from the get-go, okay? The result of what happens to you in terms of this invitation uh, by the king to eternal life, to heaven, to his home, to his palace is directly a result and compatible with your own personal choice. It's very important that we understand that. So we have to think about what our choice has been in terms of hearing the invitation of God. Last week we saw how the Lord was so incredibly patient with people. This week we see how incredibly persistent he is. Verse 4 I want to read two times. It says again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. So let's go a little slower so I can interrupt Jesus, which is extremely rude. I understand that, but I think he'll let me get away with it. Again, he sent out other servants. We said in their context last week, that was the prophets. It would be anybody who brings the word of God to people. So that may be you in your office and and you are being sent out by God. And and he says, so send out, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. So they've been refusing, but he says, keep going to them, keep going to them and listen to God's heart. Listen to the father's heart. He says, see, I, what God has done, I have prepared my dinner, my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed. They've been butchered. Everything is ready. And all things are ready. I've done everything. There's only one thing that needs to happen. You need to show up. That's the only thing that needs to happen. And so the king is ready to receive them. And then hear what God says. Come to the wedding. He doesn't say, yeah, if you feel like it. He doesn't say, if you feel led. You know, people, people read the commandments of God and like, oh, if I feel led. No, you feel led, right? You, you feel led. When God tells you to do something, you don't have to pray about it. You've got to do it, right? And so, and so there's no like, hey, if it's convenient for you, if it's in your schedule, none of that stuff. It's a command. Come to the wedding. Now, verse 5. Well, they're religious people. Of course they went, right? Well, look what it says. But they made light of it. Another version says they paid no attention. Another version says they did not care. And they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. Well, let me put that into American language for us. Uh, They had to work. The, 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 The king said, come on, come invitation but yet a command come to the wedding and they said well i i i gotta i gotta work or i'm god i'm sorry i'm just too busy i know you're busy god but i'm busy too i'm too busy for you and here's the problem we think god is okay with it don't we is here's the thing about god he's very very quiet he's very very quiet usually and a, a lot of people if you have friends that have Maybe all of a sudden, a friend of yours, someone has walked into their marriage and says, I'm done. For years, they have not said a word. And they walked in and they said they were done. Why? Because those who are closest to us are most quiet. And so so God is very quiet about it. And so they think God's okay with it. Remember last week we talked about rationalizing their sin, our sin, right? Some of you are still doing it. I know. I can see. So we talked about rationalizing our sin, but as we're going to see, God feels very differently about it. He feels that when he says, come, and we don't, 
that that is rejection of him. Now, we would expect the king to say, I invited you one time. You don't show up. That's it. Off with your head or you don't come or I'm going to I'm going to, you know, put some sort of, uh, you know, you know, people watching out for you or something like that. But not this king. He keeps inviting people. He keeps pleading with people to come for their sake. He even describes the preparations as incentive to come. And in the ancient world, a wedding feast lasted for days. And what God is talking about here is eternity. He is inviting people to this great banquet. He is inviting people to eternity. Now, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to say first off, man, bravo. I am glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I didn't become a follower of Jesus till halfway through my life. And so I was like 15 at the time. So <laughs> you never believe me. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I, you know, I, I was for half my life. I was not a follower of Jesus. So I am glad you're here. I know the place. You're like, what is this weirdness about these people? I don't get it. But yet this dude, I kind of understand him. I don't know why I get him. I used to own a trucking company. Like, oh, cool, you're cooler now. And so, and so but, but if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's important that you hear this today. This is an urgent, passionate appeal from God, through me, through the word of God, to you, come to the wedding. Come. God is pleading with you. Come. It's all something also important that all of us who are followers of Jesus see that we ourselves as ser- are the servants bearing the invitation. The Apostle Paul wrote these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then, we are our ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? Gets the message from the person they're carrying from, and they carry the message to a foreign land or to other people. They are not to change the message. They're not like, well, the president says, but I think, you know, or the boss said, the president of the company says this, but I think, not supposed to do that. Accurate message. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Another version says, making his appeal through us. We implore you. Some versions say, we plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Because people are by nature unreconciled to God. And here we are a few days before the cross. And in this place, I believe with all of my heart, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that is what Jesus is doing with you right now. He is pleading with you, pleading with you, and you'll see why in a minute, pleading with you to come to him. But sadly, like most people, they were too busy for God or they were indifferent to God. It seems they didn't even really care. And like me, they got the invitation and in the trash bin. Not going. For most people, we say we have to work. We got stuff we got to do. It's springtime. My neighbor's lawn already looks better than mine. I can't believe it. Can't believe it. He's mulching already? You're kidding. (laughs) You know, I'm all spiritual. Like, I'm waiting till the pollen. I want to be a good steward of God's money, you know. <laughs> I'm waiting till the pollen passes. But, but we, we have excuses for that stuff. Maybe we just say, I just need some me time. Like, every weekend? <laughs> every day? All of that stuff is more important than worshiping God. And even it seems here that it's more important than going to heaven. Again, the invitation To come is both an honor and a command to come to God, to come to the joy of the Lord, and to be too busy is no excuse. And here's one of the the big problems we all have. We all think we have time, don't we? Oh, I'll I'll, I'll do it. You know anything? I'll do it someday. And then you realize 
years, for some of us, decades have gone by. And, and we haven't done it yet. So let me, let me tell you something again. If you're not a Christian, you're here today, and you feel just a little tiny faint tug on your heart, that's Jesus' invitation to you. He's tugging on your heart. He's inviting you to come to him now. Now means now. Some of you moms or dads, you're, you're cooks. You have kids. And you, you make a nice dinner for everybody and you go to the bottom of the stairs and you say, dinner's ready, come on now. What happens if your kid goes, yeah, I'll be there in two or three days, mom. Not a good thing, is it? Not a good thing. How about if your boss says to you, I want this on my desk today by 5. 5.05 comes, your boss texts you, emails you into the office, come in, and says, it's 5.05. I told you I wanted this on my desk by 5. Do you go, oh, you meant today? <laughs> no, 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 no. They want it now. And so, so Jesus is saying, come now. And that tug on your heart, that is the invitation Matthew 16, 26, we covered a long time ago. Jesus said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Apparently here, what will he give in exchange for his soul? A few bucks. And for doing what they want to do. From indifference, like the king doesn't even exist, or that's how God sees it, we move to another reaction, verse 6. And the rest, other people, seized his servants, treated them spitefully, just like last week. Some versions say shamefully, another version says outrageously, and killed them. Verse 7. Remember last week, what do you think God's response will be to that? We see the king's shocking reaction to the violent and perhaps even to the indifferent people. It says, but when the king heard about it, he was furious. Other versions say he was enraged and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. So you think God was cool with it? Yeah, no, he wasn't cool with it. He had his army burn that place down. Now, that's Old Testament language for judgment. And but it but it would actually happen in 70 A.D., about 40 years later, when the Romans leveled Jerusalem. Since they have no respect for the king who represents God, they think it's okay to treat God and his servants however they want. A lot of people that you know hide behind the notion that if there is a God, in the end, all will be forgiven. Now, what Jesus just said, would you say that's a good conclusion to come to? Now, I've talked with some of you before about the happy Bible that only has the happy verses in it. Um, most Bibles are about 1,200 pages. The happy Bible is only 300. It's out of print. <laughs> People didn't buy it. And, and that verse would definitely not be in the happy Bible. That would not be in the happy Bible. But it's in the real Bible. And so when people say to me, like, oh, you know, in the end, every, everybody's going to be forgiven. What do I say to them? You know, may I'm, you know, you guys are nice people. I'm not so nice. But I just go to people, how do you know? Are you so sure? Well, I think. Well, okay, it's great what you think. What, do you know what God thinks? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, well, just, just for a second, humor me just for a second. If we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, what does the cross tell us about how he thinks about sins? And so that's what we tend to think. That's a, that's a, that's a real Americanism. Years ago, I was in a, a small group. We were do, did youth group, and we had a discussion afterwards, and, and the, the middle school girls' leader uh, was not there. So that task came to me. That, that's as close as I could ever come to believing in purgatory, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, so we, I had about 12 middle school girls, and, and, and I was asking about God's judgment. So we went through the first 11, and they were like, no, no. No, no. And the last girl said, I sure hope he does judge. What was different about that girl? Her family had recently fled Egypt 
being persecuted by the Muslim Brotherhood. Her father was a mother, father and mother were, were scientists, and the mother was waitressing, and oh, she was working at Dunkin' Donuts, and the father was pumping gas. To her, she sure hoped God judged. But it's kind of an American thing where we don't, we don't want to hear about, about such stuff. So they had, no, they had no respect for God. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Another version says it's a dreadful thing. Another, thing, another version says it's a terrifying thing. In our community group on Thursday night, uh, somehow I snuck in with a bunch of 20-year-olds who believe how old I am while you sinners don't. Um, and we were talking about the judgment of God. And, and we had a young girl who was there for the first time, and she said, how do I get right with God? Because I know I'm not. You know, most people I know that, that are what I would call radical, rabid converts. I know some of you grew up in the church. Some of you are like me. And, and most of them didn't hear a message of like, oh, well, Jesus loves you. Come on in. Most people today, you tell them Jesus loves them, and they go, what's the big deal? He loves everybody. Most of the people I know that came into the kingdom with, and, and became just these sold-out believers came in in terror. They were broken. They were, they were crushed. They knew what it was like to stand in the presence of a holy God. And they realized he's holy and I'm not. It's like Moses crossing the Red Sea. You know, the sea's in front of him and, 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 the, and, the, and the Egyptian army's coming and the people are yelling at Moses. And it's like Moses is like, listen, listen, listen. Um, we got to cross the Red Sea. The people must have been like, is Moses, is he crazy? This thing's going to swallow us up. And I could just picture Moses going, I, I know you're all afraid of the Egyptian army, and I know you're all afraid of the sea, but I'm terrified of him. I'm terrified of him. So I don't want anybody here to ever leave here today to, 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 to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think it's important for us to Forget the presumptuous culture of the American church that avoids the judgment of God. When it's in the text, I teach it. When it's not, I don't. Because Jesus is teaching us this because this is the reality of the king and the kingdom. Do you think he's lying here? No, this is the reality. And I know people don't want to talk about it. But, but, but this, in one sense, shows our hypocrisy. You know, in our culture, it's a good thing. We praise things that we think are justice. But with certain things that God thinks is justice, we avoid. Or what, what do we do? We judge the judge. When we say, oh, God would never judge, guess what we do? We judge the judge. Friends, this is why Jesus tells us these stories so we see the reality and we drop the God never judges baloney. And it gives us a desperate heart for people who don't know Jesus. A desperate heart for people who don't know Jesus. Now I have to hurry, but, but, but verses 1 through 7 has a lot of theology about God and his son, about the persistent grace of God and the consequence of rejection. But we must move on. Number two, the received invitation. Received invitation. We might say I accepted the invitation, but I'm making everything begin with R so I can remember it. The received invitation, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Another version says, did not deserve to come. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Another version says, invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the A-list does not want to come. They don't want to come. But the king doesn't go, oh, that's it. There goes the party. We're not going to do it. No, he doesn't change his plans. He says the wedding will go on without the A-list religious leaders who think they're such good people and so special and heaven's lucky to have them. Verse 10, he says, so those servants, and that would include us who are Christians. So those servants went out into the highways, other versions say streets, 
and gathered together all whom they found both good and bad. Now, we need to stop there for one second on that term, both good and bad. Some of you are saying, Pastor Jim, you've, all, you've taught us many times before. In God's eyes, there's no good people. The scripture says, none are good, no, not one. So, so what are we talking about? Well, we've then, if we're going to either say there's a contradiction or it's a difference of perspective. From God's perspective, none are good, no, not one. But from our perspective, some people are fairly decent and some people are notorious sinners. So God says, go to the decent people and go to the notorious sinners. So, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the wedding feast must go on. But the Lord says, the self-righteous, uncaring, violent opponents of mine are not on my A-list. I know they're on everybody else's A-list, but they're not on my A-list. As it turns out, God has an A-list. And it is the anybody list. Anybody who wants to receive the invitation can come in. And interestingly enough, in the eyes of the A-list people, this is the nobody list. In the eyes of the in crowd, this is the out crowd. And so, in other words, God says, go to the people who would never think that I would want them in the kingdom of heaven and you go to them and you invite them in. That would include decent, mostly working people and that's the good and the bad would include the riffraff of society, the notorious sinners. It would include the people who you would walk up to And you would say that God wants to invite you into his kingdom. And they would look at you and go, are you kidding me? Me? Are you you really kidding me? Now the people go, well, of course he wants me in the kingdom. Well, those aren't the people. Those aren't the people. God's saying, go to the people who are going to be shocked that they are invited. This brings us to a hugely important point. Don't miss this one. Worthiness in the kingdom of heaven is determined by your response to the king's invitation, not your religion. I want to repeat that. I don't want to go too fast because I want to make sure everybody understands what Jesus is saying here. Worthiness in the kingdom of heaven is determined by your response to the king's invitation, not by your religion. Jesus says to these servants, he says to his people, leave those unresponsive and proud religious people alone and go to the people who know that they are sinners and will respond to the good news and will respond to the invitation of the king. Now, again, I want to address those of you here who are not followers of Jesus. Did you hear that in the depth of your being? That God is going to judge you on your response to his invitation. You get to heaven by responding to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor Jim, are you so sure of that? Let's go back again to Matthew 5.20. Jesus said, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you're more righteous than the top-level religious leaders of the world, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not about being religious. Because you've got to be more than they are to get in. So that means they're not going to get in unless they become more than they are somehow. All through Jesus' ministry, Jesus taught that the externally righteous, the self-righteous, are almost always the first to reject his offer of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Why? They don't think they need it. 
They don't think they need it. But it is the sick who know they need a physician. It is the sinners who know they are hopelessly lost without God, that they could never stand in front of God. Those are the people that take him up on his invitation. Only those who are willing to admit that they have no relationship with God, only those who are willing to cast aside their self-righteousness and their self-reliance, only those who are willing to repent, to turn to God, turn away from the way they're living, turn to God and respond to the grace of God, those are the people who will be in heaven. As we say around here all the time, you cannot be too bad to go to heaven. You can only be too proud. And so God invites you to repent, to turn, is to turn to the only one who can forgive you and bring you into the joy of the kingdom of God. So what does he say? Go out and invite everyone. Everyone is invited to this glorious banquet in the kingdom of heaven. This is what we call the the universal invitation. And I want to share something with a couple of you here. It has been a long time for me. 31 years ago, and I still feel it today. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're thinking this invitation being given to me is a mistake. You are this close. You are this close. Because it's when you think that you were invited by a mistake that you are humble enough to realize that you can't get in there yourself. You are so close. Don't waste this day. Don't waste this moment. This is the moment for you. Turn today to God in deep sorrow over your sin. But don't stay there. Your sin is against him. My sin is against him. But don't stay there because when you turn to God, when you repent and you turn to him, you no longer have to be in sorrow, but now you stand in joy. You stand in the forgiveness of sins, in the joyful presence of God. Now just take a minute with me and just bask in Jesus' words at the end of verse 10. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Do you see it? I just love being around all the riffraff. (laughs) Do you see yourself there? Do you see yourself there? Jesus said this, John 10, 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. It's beyond Israel, he's telling them. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Do you hear Jesus' voice? Are you part of that flock? Romans 10, 12, and 13, the Apostle Paul says, there is, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Jew and non-Jew. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're not a Christian, today call upon the name of the Lord. Well, that brings us to number three, the, the righteousness invitation. Now, it would be very easy to end it at verse 10. Very easy to end at verse 10. It's good. We're over. Let's go have some coffee and cake and bagels and celebrate. Some of you are wishing for that right now. And, and so, but he doesn't. And verse 11 through 14 are a little tricky, so we have to pay careful attention. Verse 11. But when the king came to see the guests, so, so the feast is on, and the king shows up, ta-da, the king is here. He saw a man there who did not have on a... Wedding garment. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean you can't wear jeans to church? No, that's not what that means. I know some people might want to teach that. You should at least wear a jacket. (laughs) You're a guest with us here. That's a total inside joke. Okay. (laughs) But, but, but what is he? What is the wedding garment? You, you. It was a certain coat of dress for a wedding. Verse 12, so he said to him, so the king sees the guy, he's poorly dressed. And he says to him, friend. Such an interesting use of that word that Jesus uses in the Bible. Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. So so the, the deal is not, 
um, are you Jesus's friend? That's not the deal. The deal is, is he a friend of yours? People say all the time, well, God loves me. I go, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that at all. My question is, do you love him? That's a much bigger question. Friend, how did you come in here? I mean, how did you get into this place with the way you're dressed? Without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Literally, he was muzzled. Then the king said to the servants, listen to this language very carefully and see if it sounds familiar to you. Bind him, tie him up, hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They would have known that was a picture of hell. They wouldn't be like, what's he talking about? They would have known that. Now, Scholars are divided on, on what exactly is he talking about here. Uh, some would tell you that in the ancient world, if you didn't have the right clothes, that a rich host would, would supply them for you. And you know that some of these people, you know, they were, you know, maybe came from a bad situation in life that seems like they were whisked away to the wedding very quickly. So they would, um, they would have the clothes supplied for them. Some of us guys, we've experienced that. Do you ever go to a place and they say, sorry, all the men have to wear jackets? You know, and they put this really completely ugly jacket on you. And you're like, you couldn't even wash it before you gave it to me? I mean, what's the deal, man? But you got you to have, have the right clothes on. Now, some would say that this is the doctrine of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I actually think it's the best explanation. Uh, and, so, and so you would be clothed in, in the purity, the righteousness of Christ. Just picture you're kind of wearing all dirty clothes, and, and you come in, and somebody takes one of those brand-new white lab coats out of the bag, and puts it on you, and it's not a spot on it, and that's how God sees you. Others would say, no, it's simply that this man didn't take the invitation seriously and, and made no attempt to change, made no attempt to clean up things. And if that's the case, then we have uh, a professing Christian who is not a practicing Christian, or we would say that it's someone who has a said faith, their mouth says they have a faith, but they don't have a real faith. They're not living it out. And again, in America, we, uh, we balk at that as Christians. But, but certainly, this is the king who burns down the city. Certainly, the king has a right to, to decide who comes in and who does not. You know, I used to tell everybody for years that, that I had a Harvard law degree. And, and people would say, did you go to Harvard? I'd say, no. They'd say, well, how do you have a Harvard law degree? Well, I made it online. Oh, you have to go there to get it? You mean they have requirements to get it? How many of you took a driving test? And they passed you? I've seen the way some of you drive. <laughs> yeah, the, the state has a requirement. You have to pass certain things. And so God is the same way. And, and, and while people balk at that, this is a no-nonsense God at times who will burn down a city. So what do we do? We have two strong possibilities here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take, is it the righteousness of Christ or is it, is it cleaning ourselves up or, or living for God? Which is it? So uh, pardon the corny joke, I'm going to marry the two. And so it could mean that this man lacked what we call imputed righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can read about that in Revelation 7. Yet Revelation 19 talks about being clothed in good works. That's what some theologians call imparted righteousness, which is a result of imputed righteousness. So by God's grace, we are given his righteousness, and then we live our lives out of that. So what are we to do? What are we to do with that? Well, I'll just tell you one thing I do when I read the Bible, and it's not entirely clear, and I, watch, I read people who are smarter than me, and, and, and they don't even agree on it, which doesn't happen too often. Uh, but what I do is I just when Jesus is clear, I take him at face value. Remember a long time ago we did the parable of the soils, and the, and the seed went out, and some we said some fell on the stony grounds, like on the side of your driveway, and it, and it pops up, and... And a little bit of sun comes and wolts the thing away. And Jesus explained it to us. We'd have been like, what's he talking about? But Jesus explained it to us. And he says, that's like the people who they get excited about God. They have no root. A little bit of trouble comes along. 
and that's it. They're done. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Doesn't do that here. So what do I do when I come across situations like this? I try to individually apply it to myself. So here's the question I asked myself this week, and now I'm going to ask you. How am I dressed? How am I dressed? Because it seems to me that the point here is that, that not all that are in the visible church are actually members of Jesus' church. Remember, we did that with the tares and the wheats. Say, so can you give me an example? I'll give you the greatest example. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was a total imposter. He, he, looked like, he looked like an apostle. He was an apostle. He traveled with the apostles. He was the treasurer. Now, Jesus is no chump. He knew what was going on. But they, but, but they let him take care of the money. That would be the most responsible guy. Wouldn't that be the guy who would take care of the money? It wasn't like they were walking around like, well, we know he's a thief, but, you know, Jesus, you know, a couple of fish and a, you know, happy meal with a kid and he could feed 5,000 people. We don't really need any money. It wasn't like that at all. He, everybody, everybody was shocked when it was him. He was the least likely guy. And what did Jesus call him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was betraying him? Friend. Friend. Judas was his friend. But Jesus wasn't Judas's friend. The reality is that many people who respond to Jesus do not do it from the heart and then don't honor the Son with their lives. And the sad result is they usually just leave. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that it might be made manifest or plain or clear that none of them were of us. In other words, though they sat among Christian congregations, they left because they never really were Christians. Well, how is that possible? Well, that leads us to verse 14. Remember I said it can be shocking at the end? And here it gets shocking at the end. It can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. Jesus says this, verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. We could put it this way. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, it's easy to confuse the hearing of Jesus' call with an obedient response. But here it seems to be that only those who reply with an obedient response are those who are chosen. And here we have that tension that we find in the Bible that we have. doesn't mean they're opposite. It means they work together. You know, you go on a, a bridge, a suspension bridge, there's tension. You know, you, you, want the, you want the tension to work together. You don't want it to flip into the ocean. So there is a tension that's in the Scripture. And it is the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And so here we have God's sovereignty. He issues the call. Come. Come. It is a command. And then we have the human responsibility to respond or not. Apparently, this man did not respond. Once again, God's choice is compatible. In other words, it honors the choice we make to receive him or to reject him. The man thought he was dressed fine. I'm here, I'm sitting in church, I'm in the temple, I'm doing good, I got, everything is okay. But he wasn't. Again, a message that the American church is reluctant to preach. It seems we want to tell people, well, God loves you just the way you are. And I don't doubt that. But God loves us all just the way we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And so, when God calls us, God wants to change us. God wants to, wants to heal us. He wants to forgive us. Let me make it more personal. When God calls you, He wants to change you. He wants to save you. He wants to change you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive your sins. Perhaps that man was willing to have the forgiveness of sins but not leave the old life behind. Do you know what that is? That's wanting God on your own terms. And we can't do that with him. And what happened? Jesus tells us he found himself in outer darkness. 
So verse 4, the king said this, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. And with this we close. All things, my friend, are ready. 2,000 years ago, God became a man. His name was Jesus Christ. They knew him as Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a perfect life. You perfectionists, drop it. You don't have to live a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life in your place so you wouldn't have to. But then what happened? He was bound. He was tied up. He was taken away. And on the cross, he was cast into the darkness of death. So you wouldn't have to be. And I wouldn't have to be. But Jesus defeated death. He rose from the dead and now invites you into the kingdom of heaven. All the preparations are done. As he said, as the king said, all things are ready. There's only one thing that needs to happen now. You need to come. You need to come. It's free to you and me. That's the amazing thing. It's free to you and me, but it costs the king everything to throw this party, even the life of his own son. So how do I come? I admit that I'm going the one way from God and God's back here, but I'm going the other way. And I turn from my sin and I turn to God instead. And when I turn, what do I see? I see one of these. But I see a savior on that cross dying in my place for my sins. I trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, several times today, I have talked to those of you who might be here who are not followers of Jesus. And I want to talk to you again as seriously as I can, as someone who comes from the place where you were. And I'm going to tell you right now, I believe with all of my heart, if you are not a follower of Jesus, right now, this is the moment you were born for. This is that moment. And, and we, in, in, in the Greek language, we call it the kairos moment. It is the moment. You have an invitation from the king. Take it. Take it. Come now. And if you come now and put your trust in him now, then you will know that you were chosen. Well, let's pray.